when you couple ADHD with pretty intense poverty, which which happens a lot, it was it was really hard to hmm, it was it was really hard to kind of pick up on those nuances when there were just so many other daily struggles that had to be combated first. Like it was really hard to like think about like how is Alicia doing in her math class when it's like okay how are we going to pay rent. Hello and welcome to the Women in ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I'd like to share with you this review from the Apple Podcasts platform in the US from a listener with the awesome handle of Basic B Don't You Know. Basic B writes, I've never related more to a podcast. This podcast has truly shed light on the truth and nature of ADHD. Recently diagnosed, this has been my introduction into understanding and learning just how parallel other people's experiences are to mine. Thank you for curating this much needed podcast. And thank you, Basic B, don't you know? Sometimes I worry that this podcast isn't a great introduction to ADHD because we so often just hit the ground running in these interviews and there's not a lot of background given when it comes to terminology and common traits, etc. So I love knowing that these conversations can provide such a great introduction to what ADHD truly looks like and feels like in the lives of adult women. So thank you for writing this review. I know I often sound like a broken record when I ask for reviews, but they really are so important for getting this podcast noticed so other women can hear these stories and nod along and say, yes, me too, and then hopefully feel better about themselves and their experiences growing up and navigating life as a neurodivergent woman. So please, if you are a listener of this podcast and you haven't yet left a review or shared this podcast, please take a moment to do so. It really, really helps. And if you're looking to connect with other amazing, like-minded women with ADHD, come join us in the Women in ADHD online community. We have monthly Q&As with our resident ADHD expert and therapist, Jules. We also have curated resources for women with ADHD, no matter where you are on your journey. Come join us at womenandadhd.com, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Full disclosure, in order to keep the community small and safe and friendly, we do charge a small fee to join. But if you'd like to join and that fee is prohibiting you from doing so, please reach out to me via email. You'll find that in the show notes as well. Okay, here we are at episode 78, in which I interview Alicia Mays. Alicia is a PhD student in cultural anthropology at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Alicia actually dropped out of high school and went from getting her GED to getting her PhD. She is a first-generation college student, and she has devoted herself to studying systems of poverty and inequality in Kentucky, particularly as it relates to food. Alicia was diagnosed at 31 and credits her ADHD with giving her an innate ability to connect with people. She's passionate about sharing stories for social change and empowering people to claim their narrative. This was a really great conversation. I'm so excited for it to air. It's also one of the more raw interviews I've had on this podcast as we talk about Alicia's experiences growing up in extreme poverty. So I'm giving this episode a trigger warning. We discuss such topics as eating disorders and attempted suicide. So if those topics are difficult for you, you might want to sit this episode out. That being said, I am honored to be able to bring you this interview. Alicia reached out to me as a listener who has benefited immensely from the stories she's heard on this podcast, and she wanted to give back and share her unique perspective. And I am so grateful that she did. I also want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. You'll be hearing a little bit more about Magic Mind later in the episode, so stay tuned. Uh, So yeah, so I guess you're relatively newly diagnosed at the age of 31, correct? So why don't you tell me about kind of what was going on in your life that led to you thinking maybe I should look into this ADHD thing and kind of what was leading up to your, your diagnosis? 
Okay, so it's kind of a long story, um, I think, it always as it is. is for most people, right? <laughs> so um, it started with sleep, right? So sleep is like foundational uh, because I've had so many problems in my life with sleep. Sleep has been like the bedrock of my anxiety for so long. So I was about to start a PhD program um, and I was just thinking about all the work that I would have to do over the next several years. Um, and I went several days just not being able to fall asleep. Um, and that's been pretty consistent throughout my life. It's been pretty hard for me to sleep at night because I'm always up at night thinking and worrying and and finally remembering that I forgot to give a table some ranch as a server. And so it's been it's been really hard to sleep at night. And so I was uh I was really struggling and I had to go to um, a psychiatry appointment because it had been, you know, several days and I was not able to fall asleep. Um, and I go in and at this point, I think I'm 27 or 28. And she says, oh, I think that you're bipolar manic right now. And I'm like, oh, no, really? This is, <laughs> I've never like had this happen before where I'm awake for several days at a time. Is it possible that I'm bipolar manic right now? And and she's like, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So um, she puts me on some bipolar medication that makes me feel verifiably insane. <laughs> and does oh, not really? make me feel very, oh yeah. What was it doing? Can I ask? It made me feel like my heart was beating faster and slower at the same time. And my thoughts were just so like even more delayed than, than typical for me. Yeah. Um, it was just really hard to formulate a thought. Um. So I um, kind of lost hope in therapy for a while um, and went back and was like, you know, I totally disagree with your diagnosis. Um, and she's like, okay, well, here's some anxiety medication. So fast forward um, to several years later, uh, my husband and I get a divorce, um, which pushes me back into therapy, right? And so I'm explaining to her, you know, all of these things that have happened in my life. And she's like, have you ever considered for a moment that it might be ADHD. And I this was like, is a oh, new therapist, right? Not the same one yeah. who, pers- yes. who diagnosed you with bipolar manic. Okay. Yeah. Right. So totally new therapist. So she's like, have you ever considered just for one second that maybe it's ADHD? And I was like, um, no, never. Um, I live in Kentucky where, where childhood, um, Childhood ADHD diagnoses are pretty prevalent, right? It's one of the most prevalent places in the country for children to be diagnosed with ADHD. And so I had this like formulation in my head, as we all do, that ADHD was what little boys who were very rowdy um, were diagnosed with. And I was like, no, I've never considered that for five minutes. Um, and she's like, okay, well, I can't, you know, put you on any medications for it because she was a licensed clinical social worker, but she's like, I highly recommend reaching out to a psychiatrist or someone that can help you with this. So it took me a year to get into psychiatry from that point. And here's why. So I would schedule the appointment and then I would forget that I scheduled the appointment. And then I just, I mean, I I didn't go, of course. Um, And then I I mean, it just took me so long to even schedule the appointment in the first place because I was like, I need to do this and I know I do, but I just don't want to do it. Um, and, <laughs> and then it took me, I think, four canceled appointments. Like I would like call and cancel like five minutes right before because I'd be like, oh, it's in five minutes. I'm so wait your that it's happening. Or I would just totally forget that the appointment was real in the first place because it was on a pink post-it note somewhere in my bedroom. And I don't have access to that right now. Um, but I finally, finally got in uh, and, and was able to stick to it only because I was like, okay, I'm flunking out of my PhD program at this point. 
opening my laptop gives me severe anxiety. I have got to get help. Like we're to mm. a point right now where I'm spiraling. I'm about to get fired. This is not good. So I go in um, and the diagnosis process was, I mean, it was, it was fairly simple. It wasn't the monster that I made it out to be in my head. Um, and that was now about a month ago. So this is also pretty fresh that I've had like my psychiatrist diagnose me and I've gotten back into therapy again. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm right there at the beginning of the process, um, and falling in love with finally knowing what's wrong with me. It is, isn't it just like, it's so difficult to articulate to other people how mind blowing it is <laughs> when, when you get this diagnosis and you start connecting the dots, especially when you've been kind of had this misconception about what ADHD is and what it looks like. And, and these seemingly random struggles that you have throughout your life that all kind of tie together. And, and yeah, and so it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that you had a medical provider who thought bipolar manic, because I've talked to so many people, so many women, and I myself thought I was bipolar before I received my ADHD diagnosis because of, you know, the things that you were talking about, the like obsessive thinking and, and manic energy. And, and yeah, I mean, there is such, so many kind of uh, parallels and overlaps and um, yeah. So, wow. Oh yeah. She had me pretty convinced too. She was like, so do you ever just go shopping randomly and spend money? And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like all the time. Like I like love going shopping and I didn't realize it's because I was chasing the dopamine. Right. So it was really easy for me to just hop on Amazon when I'm feeling very understimulated and buy something that's going to make me very happy. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't like I was blowing my entire life savings on, on a yacht to cruise around the Atlantic. It was just like, Oh yeah, I could totally use that new skirt. It's going to make me really happy right now. Um, so <laughs> she had me really convinced. And then I was like, Hmm, some of these things actually don't make sense because this has been a problem consistently. Like, like I don't have episodes. This is just who I am. Yeah. Right. And I think that is really what it, why it, it feels so confusing to kind of go through and, um, you know, try to figure out what is connected and what is the cause. And, you know, especially when so many of us are misdiagnosed with other mood disorders and you're like, Oh wait, living a life undiagnosed is kind of the trauma itself <laughs> when you talk about all of these mood disorders. Um, so yeah, it is, it is mind blowing. So now when you, when you were first diagnosed and really started looking into it, and I'm assuming hyper-focusing on ADHD as we do, as we do when, when we start connecting those dots, like, what were some of the things looking back in your life where you were like, holy crap, the signs were there all along? Oh my goodness. So I am on TikTok. I am 31, but I'm also very in love with TikTok. I know my, my uh, 19 year old sister makes fun of me for it. So um, I, I'm very well versed in just typing in ADHD and then just following down the rabbit hole of ADHD TikTok. It is mm -hmm. so fascinating to see, to see how many things that I've just thought were personal flaws that are just part of, of, of me being just a little different in the way that I think. Like um, one thing that I've noticed that I didn't, that I hear kind of rarely, but, but I'm still hearing is um, hyper-focusing in love. So uh, ADHD mm. dating, I think is a little different um, than, than, you know, neurotypical dating. Um, when I first meet someone, um, it is just all dopamine. <laughs> it is 
all dopamine. All the dopamine is found in that new person. And I like to just push the relationship right along because I'm like, oh yeah, like this is just making me so happy. And I hyper-focused on this person and then I learned everything about them. Um, and at, at one point I was, con- I, I was really convinced that I was narcissistic love bombing because I'm like, okay, I am like hyper-focusing on these people. And then a few months later when the dopamine's gone, focused on something else. And all of those things that I was doing for that person in the beginning of the relationship, I'm not doing that anymore because I'm focused on something else now. And so they're like, um, hmm, what did I do wrong? What's happening? And it's like, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just learning how to knit. I'm just learning how to play the ukulele. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as invested in like hearing your, your family's history anymore because I have to learn how to knit this sweater before tomorrow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have to be the fastest knitter on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then I'll knit a sweater and it's like, okay, that was interesting. Now I'm going to go buy a ukulele. These are real things that have happened in my life. It's like, okay, so I, so I did learn how to knit that. Totally done with that now. That's no longer making me happy. Now we're going to go learn how to play the ukulele. So then I'll learn how to play a really cool song on ukulele. And it's like, okay, that was great. Fun times. Now we're gonna get really into comic books. Let's go. Let's go buy all the comic books. <laughs> so my apartment is like an assemblage of hobbies of past lives <laughs> that just live in every corner of my of my place because it's it's I don't know. Like I I didn't realize that that was part of ADHD, but apparently it is. I'm seeing a lot of people that that are kind of going through that. Um, But, you know, sort of on a more somber note, um, I think one of the things I didn't really realize was part of this, too, was um, consistently feeling like you're too much for people. Um, So my friends throughout, I mean, it's it's been kind of hard to make friends because I'm really awkward socially, I think. Um, Like, I don't really have a filter. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, look, let me say this right now. I know that you were just talking. That can wait. I have to get this out right now. Um, and, and I'm always the last person laughing and the loudest person laughing and, and just like the loudest person in the conversation in general. And so throughout life, it's been like, oh, like we don't really talk to Alicia because she's too much. Um, we don't want to like get her all wound up or or things that I've heard or like you're way up here. I'm going to need you to bring it down to here. Mm -hmm. Um, because I do get very hyperactive sometimes. I know, like, I know that that's not like super common for women, I guess. Um, but I tend to, to just bounce off the walls every now and again. Um, and, and it's, it's really frustrating for people. And I come off as a rude asshole, if I'm being honest with you, because I just come off like I have no regard for people in social settings. Um, but, but I can't, <laughs> it's not on purpose. No, no. I mean, I think this is a theme we talk about a lot. Um, um, I certainly have had that experience where like I come in hot, like you said, like I, I hyper-focus on people. I, you know, and even back in like middle school and high school, my friendships were like that, where it would be like obsessively kind of bonding with somebody and then doing something inadvertently to offend that person or anger that person or something, you know, like being either too much or, or just sort of like a, a bad friend, but not 
really doing it intentionally or even understanding what is happening. And then all of a sudden that person has dumped me and, and sort of feeling like, what did I do? And it still happens to this day where like somebody will like unfriend me on Facebook and I literally have no idea what I did. And it's so, it's like, you just sort of, you start really fearing relationships a lot of the way. And like you said, like you start to really kind of pull back from people. It's really difficult to trust relationships um, because you can't really even trust yourself a lot of the time. I think that was something that was so profound to me. Sarah Solden talked about it in her book on women with um, attention deficit disorder, how like we can't trust ourselves in a lot of situations. Like you were saying, like sometimes we blurt things out and we talk, and, you know, sometimes we're super like on fire and really social. And other times we just want to curl up in a ball and we have no idea how we are necessarily going to react in any given situation. And so, you know, the combination, I think, of not being able to trust who we are with people and in certain situations, and then also the the chronically feeling like we have done something accidentally. Uh, and so we, yeah, we pull away a lot for sure. Oh yeah. That's exactly what led to my, um, my therapist thinking that I had ADHD is I, I went in and like, I think that my exact words were like, my self-trust is bankrupt. Mm. I can't depend on myself to wake up in the morning on time because I'm either up all night or, you know, people with ADHD have vastly different sleep cycles than, than, people that don't have ADHD. So, so waking up on time has, has just consistently been a problem for me. Um, and, and showing up for things when my friends need me there has consistently been a problem with me and not being late to things, even if it's dinner. I mean, a few times my friends are like, okay, like, yeah, you were late like twice in a row, whatever. But then after a while, it's like every time we schedule a dinner, you're late and then you get here and you just like spend the whole time talking and we can't get a word in or get a word in edgewise and so so yeah like there are those things where it's like I can't even depend on myself like of course like you know it's hard to maintain relationships when you're just so so kind of wounded because you think I mean pre-diagnosis I honestly thought that I was just a really shitty person like I've spent mm -hmm. 31 years of my life thinking that I am just a shit person and that I am like not to be trusted. I'm really lazy. Uh, I'm, I will sleep through anything and I have no regard for important events in my friend's life. I thought that I was a terrible friend um, and a bad teacher because it takes me longer to grade things than it does, you know, other, other teachers across the university. And I, and I just thought that I was just a bad person and that I, I, I really inherited all of these things as, as just tragic personality flaws, not realizing that it was linked to something else. Yeah. Oh man. I know. And then you, and then the first time you hear about rejection sensitivity dysphoria, and it just hits you like a ton of bricks where you're just like, oh my goodness, somebody is finally explaining what I have been feeling my whole life in terms of yeah, that shame, you know, the shame that goes along with being kind of accidentally an asshole. <laughs> like, like, you know, right? Like you really, it's that idea and it's so hard to articulate. And I think why it's so important for us to have conversations with each other, right? And why, you know, platforms like TikTok have been so meaningful to us because so much of our, so much of the shame around that is something we've been holding without even realizing how private and, and, uh, you know, how we haven't been addressing it or we, you know, a lot of the times we're just like, so we're just treading water. So we can't even like process 
all of the shame that we're feeling around a lot of this stuff. And so we don't even stop and think about it until somebody says something like, yeah, you know, you know, um, a, a TikTok video about like, you know, being a bad friend or something. And you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> like it just it floods <laughs> over you. Right. It's so emotional to be like, oh my goodness, somebody just said something I didn't even realize I had been feeling, uh, <laughs> Or, you know, just seeing that someone else, you know, kind of, kind of goes through the same thing. Like, oh, you cry for three days when someone does something that like, that is slightly critiquing of you. Me too. Like I also am awake every night for like three days, just crying about it and thinking about it and just not being able to let it go. And then, and then, you know, it's, it's really, really hard. And then whenever those critiques do come in, um, and I don't want to co-opt, um, language from from ASD but but I do uh like to use the word masking because I think that that's the best way that it uh is is described when you do receive those critiques it's it's like immediately you have to mask like when your friends are like oh like you're being too loud or like oh you're doing this or doing that it's like I just shut down like and it and it becomes so like catastrophic in my head that like I just shut down and I kind of push myself off to the side and I've gotten really good at that. Um, I, I have, I didn't realize how many masks that I have until I started watching ADHD TikTok and it's like, Oh, okay. So the fact that I'm like, huh, what'd you say? Even though I heard you, but I just need time to process. What you said. <laughs> I think Connor DeWolf, Connor DeWolf did a video about that. Yeah. It was, yeah. He did a really good job of that idea of like, yeah, no, I heard you. It's just like, I, I tell my kids, it's like, it, it sits in the lobby for a minute before it makes it into the building. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard at that one because I'm the like queen of point. Huh? What'd you say? And like, people know that I heard them. And so my, my sister stopped responding and she just like gives me the second now to like formulate. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's such a great example of like accommodations and how important they are, right? Like once you kind of can explain what is happening and then somebody can say, all right, well then I'll just help you out here. And then the cycle of shame is, is disrupted. And that's what I think is so important for us is that understanding like what is happening and then being able to at least explain, you know, like I, I always say, you know, ADHD isn't an excuse, it's an explanation. And that's as much for us as it is for other people, right? Because I think for us, we internalize so much of that, like, why am I not listening to you? <laughs> like, I don't know what's happening. Oh, yeah. Not listening is is definitely uh, an, just another one of those like hallmark um, traits that I've that I've noticed that I have too. So so being in higher ed, obviously, like we have to listen and being an anthropologist in general, like our whole job is kind of interviewing people and listening. And so I um, have to think so hard about listening and paying attention that like I'm thinking about it so much that I'm like, I'm not listening to what you're saying anymore because yeah. I'm thinking about the fact that I should be listening to you. Um, and And even, I mean, I know that like, Sometimes when we're wildly interested in things, we hyper-focus. But sometimes even when I'm very invested in something and someone's talking, my mind is like not just in one place, like 80 different places, like thinking about a million different things. And I've noticed that sometimes even when I'm talking, my mind is not present with what my mouth is saying. So I will like talk about something, but my head is like, I wonder 
what the circumference of Santa Claus's belt is. I think that like... (laughs) Well, that was something that always fascinated me when I would read to my children at night, right? Like I could be reading out loud Charlotte's Web and at the same time thinking a million other different thoughts and having a narrative. And even though like my mouth is saying these words out loud and like it knows the intonation and it knows how, you know, it knows it knows the cadence and everything like I can read it as though I'm actually reading it. And yet I will have no clue what I have just read. Uh, and like my kid would have stopped me and been like, is that true? And I was, and then I would get, you know, busted where I was like, uh, I actually have no idea what I've been reading for the last 30 minutes. Like it just, those sorts of weird quirks that, that now through that lens of understanding, you're like, wow, that is really fascinating how our brains work like that. Oh yeah. It's, it's very noticeable in graduate school when you're reading like text from like the 1800s and it's, it's like, oh, like my head would, uh, and I would just literally rather be anywhere other than here right now. And so I can read something and then have to reread it like seven different times. Um, because I just can't, <laughs> it's just so hard to stay in that moment when you're, when you're just, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's certainly hard to read during graduate school when you have ADHD and like your primary job is like reading and listening to people. And it's like, those are the two things that are really difficult to do. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know if there are any other PhD students out there, but I just like can totally sympathize with the difficulty. This episode is brought to you by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. When it comes to maintaining focus and energy throughout the day, I tend to rely heavily on caffeine. But that can backfire when I get over-caffeinated and end up with that jittery, agitated feeling that interferes with my ability to focus and be productive. This is where Magic Mind comes in. Unlike regular energy drinks, Magic Mind contains minimal caffeine, but is loaded up with all natural ingredients like the adaptogens ashwagandha and turmeric, nootropics, and matcha, all of which help you keep that focus and motivation throughout the day. As a special offer for listeners of the Women in ADHD podcast, you'll get 20% off your order. Simply head over to magicmind.co slash womenadhd and make sure to enter the code ADHD at checkout. Again, head to magicmind.co slash womenadhd and you'll find that link in the show notes for 20% off your order. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. 
Well, this is just something else I find fascinating because you mentioned in your email to me that you never graduated high school. And and so I'm always fascinated because a lot of, I would say the majority of the women I interview actually do quite well in school. I did not, I did terribly in school. And I, and I talk about the fact that like a lot of the criticisms of my inconsistencies got me to the point where I just skipped school all the time and I stopped going and then I would get, you know, I would flunk and then I had to redo, you know, I've, I dropped out and I had to go back. And, and then the same thing happened again in university. I was just, I would stop going because I would get so overwhelmed by my classes and I, I had, would miss the cutoff date to drop the classes. So I would get F's. And so then my GPA was destroyed and all of that stuff. So <laughs> I'm curious and, you know, but then I barely just, just got my BA just to get it. Like I never, there was never any point where I was like, I'm going to continue to graduate school because I just <laughs> felt like such a hot mess. So I'm curious. So like, um, backtrack a little bit, like what did, did you, what was going on in high school? And then how did you transition from that period of your life to then being, you know, going on and doing your PhD? So yeah, let's talk about high it's school. It's a roller so coaster. Gonna, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it really is. So it's, uh, GED to PhD with ADHD is like my There's story. your autobiography, uh, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, high school, you probably won't be surprised to know um, I had an eating disorder. Um, I was um, I was anorexic uh, for a really long time. So I come from a deeply impoverished family. Uh, and so I think that a part of my eating disorder stemmed from food insecurity and not having access to fresh and healthy foods uh, or just food in general, to be honest with you. Um, so, so that was definitely a key part of it. So, so I suffered from anorexia. I was severely underweight, you know, at various points, my health was just deteriorating. Um, I could not focus in school at all. So I went from being in very gifted classes, um, and part of these like elitist, like academic teams and, and, and just very, you know, uh, advanced courses to, not coming to class at all and being in court for truancy and uh literally just leaving in the middle of class when I wasn't interested like it wasn't like I could just sit and suffer through it anymore I would just get up and leave um and that's been a pretty common thing for me is like if if I am not interested in a course I cannot sit through it and I'm out like I'll just walk away so I even left uh, in the middle of taking my ACTs I had no interest in finishing it so I mean it wasn't a difficult test I just didn't have like I I I don't know. I can't explain it. I wasn't in control in that moment. Something else was, and I just got up and left. Um, and, and so I that, just to, just to like interject, I think anyone listening to this podcast will a hundred percent understand that impulse <laughs> just by the way, like that's how kind of connected we are with ADHD or like, I uh, absolutely understand that impulse and, and relate to that. So sorry, <laughs> I just had to interject. <laughs> I, I commend the people that are able to like push past that. I cannot, I just, I, you know, that like DSM-5 language, it's like you're driven by a motor. Yeah, that was like one of those like motor moments for me. It's like, nope, mm-hmm. she's gone. Um, and that would happen very frequently. So that um, that sort of just total disinterest coupled with, you know, extreme poverty and and massive health issues from, from, from um, an eating disorder. I went until my senior year and I'd fallen so far behind that I was going to have to take all these credit recovery classes and be in high school for another year. And I just could not stomach that. I was in court for truancy. I was working full-time hours in high school to help my family, 
um, and, and to just have some money. Um, and I had to pay back like a $600 fine on like five twenty five an hour, I think was like the minimum wage back then for being truant. So yeah, that's kind of messed up about our, uh, our school system, but yeah, my family couldn't afford it. So I at uh, 18 had to, had to work full-time hours to pay off a truancy fee. Um, and I just didn't go back. I, uh, ended up going to get a GED, uh, which uh, helped me finish sooner than my friends, which I was really excited about. So I got to get out just a little bit early. Uh, and then I took several years off and did absolute trash work. Uh, <laughs> like worked for like 18 different companies in a year because I could not keep a job. Because again, if I'm not interested in something, I just leave. And it's like, I don't, I mean, try explaining that to, you know, your, your partner who is deeply depending on you to, to help pay rent. And you're like, listen, I don't know why I just quit this other job. I know that we have no money, but I also just got up and left that one too. I'm sorry. Like I, I have no idea what to say. And so I just thought that I, I had no respect for him or me, or like, I didn't care. I spent so long thinking that. Um, and then finally went back to school, almost flunked out again, uh, out of, out of undergrad. And then, um, somehow made it to through a master's program with with professors that are deeply interested in like making sure that their students are, are really cared for um and now I'm up here hanging out with other PhD students and I have no idea how I got here <laughs> and I have no idea how I'm gonna stay <laughs> I'm at the end of the of the program now and I'm I'm finally finished with coursework <laughs> I have no idea how I'm gonna finish it because whew, it's been it's been really hard. It's 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 really hard when you just don't trust yourself enough to go to class. And when you do get to class, you don't trust yourself enough to stay there. Um that's yeah, that's took that that's really put a lot of stress on my mental health. Um, because I just have no trust that I can even stay seated in class and just finish the lecture or do the homework or wake up to get there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also found that no matter how many, you know, even when I was in the undergraduate level, I would still, I would go to all the lectures. I would listen. I would take notes. I would study. Like I would do all the work necessary. And then I would show up for a test and just nothing. I'd just be a blank slate. And I think that was the other feeling of like that other mistrust, which is like, sometimes I can randomly explain the plot of a movie I saw in the eighties, but then other times like I could, you know, have, you know, read an entire text and not be able to retain or, or explain any of it and really not understanding why that is or what the difference was. And then, you know, defaulting back to, well, what is wrong with me? I must be a terrible person or, you know, I'm not trying hard enough or all those kind of, you know, the, the internalized, um, stigma that we end up piling on ourselves. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was such a common occurrence for me. Um, it was, it was miserable that, and also I would get kicked out of lectures sometimes for being too loud and disruptive. Um, so I was the person who was like cracking jokes really loudly in the middle of a giant lecture hall. And so I thought that I was just hilarious. Um, <laughs> so I was like laughing at my, I'm so embarrassed with that. I think that the younger people say it's cringy. Uh, <laughs> it's really cringy to look back on it. I was like, I thought that I was like this comedic genius because that was the way that I would stay engaged was to make jokes about like what the professor was saying and like laugh at it. And like, 
I would get kicked out for being too mm-hmm. <laughs> Not one of my proudest moments. But, but hey, uh, yeah, so so that and like, a, you know, of course, like just the test process was, was really hard uh, because it was, I mean, I would read something and it was just like nothing would stick, you know, it was like, I was just staring at like these symbols, you know, like, like these symbols that were supposedly formed words and paragraphs on a page. But to me, like, it was just, yeah, certainly hard to read and, and then like actually retain that information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Magic Mind was created by James Bashara, a Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur who ended up in the ER with a heart condition brought on by the combination of stress and caffeine. He started researching natural alternatives, teamed up with scientists and medical professionals, and he created the Magic Mind drink and wrote the book Beyond Coffee. I personally really like the taste, and it's a nice little shot of energy to keep me focused throughout the day without any of that jittery, agitated feeling I get from too much coffee. Beyond just energy and focus, it has ingredients to help you stress less, reduce brain fog, and stay on task. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 20% off your order. And make sure to enter the code ADHD at checkout. Again, that's magicmind.co slash womenADHD, and you can find that link in the show notes for 20% off your order. When I was diagnosed, and I think a lot of a lot of us experience this when we're diagnosed, you know, it's like you start going, you know, it's genetic. So you go through your family tree and you're like, yep, Aunt Sue definitely had it. Oh yeah, Uncle Fred. Oh my God. Yeah, what a trade rat. You know, it's like you just like go through. Um <laughs> have you know, what have you talked to your family about this and kind of what was their reaction? And are they on board or are they supportive or uh, or are they just like, don't be ridiculous? So I'm from Eastern Kentucky, uh, where mental health is just not something that most people talk about, uh, even within like family households. It's just like not part of like our cultural capital to like talk freely about those things. Not to like, not to stereotype the whole region, of course, but like within my family um, and a lot of families I know, that's certainly the truth. Um, And so my parents know that I was recently diagnosed. uh, And it's so funny that my mother is like, like the poster person for ADHD. Um, She certainly has ADHD. Um, And she, um, she was like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense because like we had this like, you know, long conversation about how it's not just for very hyper little boys. And she's like, well, you know, you were kicked out of preschool for being too disruptive. (laughs) You, I know it's like, okay, mother. Yeah, really. (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, you did have some delays. Like, it did take you till third grade to learn how to tie your shoes and to skip. And you didn't learn how to walk until you were two. Um, so so you definitely did have all of these delays. And, and, when, and when you weren't interested in something, you just wouldn't stay. You were just gone. And so even when we tried to homeschool you in kindergarten because you were kicked out of den for being too disruptive, um, we... we um, had to sit at the kitchen table and you just would have zero interest in what was happening and you would like tap and drum on things and and just like get up and leave whenever you were done it's like so so she was like you know I I I do see that and I'm like really you don't say you don't (laughs) how did you not know um and and then she herself you know I was I was actually just visiting her last night and I'm very open with the fact that now I take medication I'm not medicated today 
because I forgot, right? That's like, that's like the funniest thing in the world. Like I forgot. So today I'm just being a loose cannon. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> but, but I was, I was, you know, a little bit calmer yesterday because I was medicated and I go over there and I'm talking to her about something and right in the middle of my sentence, she just like interjects with this really random thought. And she's like, you know, really excited about it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's what I'm like. This is it. Like, this is what people see because like I was, you know, really calm, cool and collected. I'm, I'm still getting used to my medicine. So I feel like I'm just like this like super chill person who can like think thoughts and do things. And she just like cuts in and interjects. And I'm like, Hmm. Yep. Yep. I see it now. And she gets so like excited about things and, and she's consistently late. Um, she was supposed to be here earlier this afternoon. It was, it was super late. Uh, just, just like me. Uh, and he's like, you know, I think I might have ADHD. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things about it being genetic is that so many of our families, this was just the norm. This was normal. And so why would they think this was odd behavior in childhood, right? This is probably what they had done. And and so they're, you know, it's it's like, I feel like half of it is just like clinically not really understanding what is happening with children and kind of how it exhibits, um, uh, you know, across the board. But then at the same time, parents who are just sort of like, oh, Oh, Jimmy's just being silly. Like he just needs to be punished or whatever. <laughs> I think, I think it's just that idea of like, um, why would I think that this was a disorder of some sort? You know, this is just childhood. Yeah. They certainly don't think like, I don't think that my family would have UAD, Like they have this very positive. I mean, like, although I just said mental health is like really stigmatized, like within our family, ADHD is, is just not, um, it's not really like, I don't think that they would view it as a disorder. Uh, my mom just thinks it's pretty cool that she um, is is really excitable and talkative. And, and it's just, you know, like we're just known as being very loud um, and we take up a lot of space, which is this like cool feminist thing. Right. Like it's like, oh, like those women, like they just take up all the space they want. Like can't can't mansplain them because they will not even let you talk. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's. It's not really viewed as, I don't think, being a disorder to them. That's which awesome. Which is cool. Yeah, yeah, that is great. That's one of the things, you know, my my mother passed away before I was diagnosed. And she's like the one person I really wish I could have conversations with about this because it's just so, you know, you just spend so much time going over you know, my, I go over my childhood all the time and my report cards and school and just, uh, you know, so much of it and, and wanting to know, you know, there are times where I'm like, oh yeah, she definitely had it because she, you know, did this or this and, um, yeah. Yeah. So that's great. I'm, I'm so glad that they are open-minded and also see these things not as flaws because, you know, a lot of the time I think, part when, you know, when people do go to their family and say, you know, I have, I have ADHD, I'm getting diagnosed and they're, you know, the idea of like, well, it's not that bad. It's just, you just need to like apply yourself. Right. You just, you know, it's not a big deal. You're doing fine. Uh, and you know, their first instinct is always to, um, uh, minimize, you know, what, what the struggle actually is in your own life as though it's somehow going to reflect poorly on their parenting or, uh, you know, that it's, I think it's the same idea of like, they'll start to think it's their fault somehow. 
I think because oh, I yeah. think one of the stigmas for a long time was the fact that ADHD was bad parenting. And I'm sure, you know, with when you're struggling in school at any age, right? How how can your parents not feel like they are somehow to blame? I'm sure my parents did all the time. Yeah, I think I think though when you couple ADHD with with pretty intense poverty, which which happens a lot, um, it's it was it was really hard to it was it was really hard to kind of pick up on those nuances when there were just so many other daily struggles that had to be combated first like it was really hard to like think about like how is Alicia doing in her math class when it's like okay how are we going to pay rent or like how are we going to do this and so yeah it was I mean I don't in any way shape or form blame them at all um for for my late diagnosis and I don't I mean I don't hold anything against them because I know that that they were just trying the best that they could with what they had. And, and, you know, seeing that, like, I was, you know, having a really hard time in, in math class. Um, and I consistently struggled here and there, like I stopped doing my homework for a while. I don't, yeah. Like I can see how that would, you know, sort of come second to like, how are we going to like feed four kids? And yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, it was, yeah, it's, it's really hard. And so I think that, that all the nuances that exist between ADHD and poverty. I mean, it, it actually makes me cry. Like just to think about like how, how prevalent they, they kind of are together and, and these, these, you know, life cycles that are just forever changed because, you know, ADHD often is comorbid with things like anxiety. And, you know, it's, it's people that, that are really having a hard time with these, you know, mental traits um that that you know have have it more financially difficult and I don't know you know like what happens throughout the cycle exactly but but I mean the relationship is just undeniable and it's really sad yeah that's really beautifully said thank you I mean I think it's true there is such uh, in this, I think across this country, you know, there is such a discrepancy between um, awareness of mental health and the importance of mental health and then the systems that can, uh, you know, support and they just don't exist, right? I mean, there's just like, I feel like I live in New York state. I'm a middle-class, you know, working person. I have insurance. And yet I think about like the out-of-pocket expenses for mental health with my family are astronomical and, and not even, you know, and I'm not even taking meds. And part of the reason I'm not taking meds is because they're so expensive. Uh, Even Mm -hmm. though I know that antidepressants were literally pennies of pill. Um, So I'm curious, like with the um, when you when you said earlier that ADHD is very highly diagnosed in Kentucky and boys, um, you know what's the follow up to that? Because I I don't imagine that the there's much follow up in terms of social services and medication. Oh yeah, no, no. So what do um, they do with say, that diagnosis? No. Is it just sort of like a, a label that's put on kids who are who are the you know the oh, misbehaving? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is something like, I'll be really vulnerable and share this. Like this isn't really like, I, like I feel so guilty saying this. So let's see in 2011, this is according to the CDC, the uh, national, let's see, the prevalence of diagnosed ADHD in Kentucky was 16.6%. Nationally, it was only 11. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big gap. Um, and I'm seeing some articles that say that this state has the highest, highest prevalence um, in children. And so I grew up thinking, and I, I you know, hate to say this out loud, but I mean, this is just like what, like, like my former worldview. Um, I grew up thinking that ADHD was something that hyperactive little boys had and that their parents would go get them Ritalin. I, I had heard of Ritalin at a very young age. And so I thought that it was just like this, this, you know, medicine that these really mean little boys that I was exposed to in school um, would take to just calm down. Um, and, and it was just part of like our family, you know, this sort of culture, like, Oh, like, well, guess who put their kid on Ritalin this week? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it was really stigmatized and judged for what it was back then. Um, but like, families would, would really harshly look at other families who, who chose to medicate their children. Um, and yeah, like there was just this like sort of superior pa- parenting culture, like, Oh, well, I would never, you know, put my children on anything like that because I can handle my children or my children know better than to do this, that, or this. Um, so, so yeah, it's, really stigmatized and then there just aren't very many mental health services in the region I don't think that can I mean yeah it's tough yeah and that's I mean that's another theme I feel like I explore a lot with women um when we talk about like what was available to you growing up right and and so we do we do talk a lot about so um socioeconomic status and race and the ways in which stigma affects people based on like pre-assumptions around behavior of children right and so like a lot of children who are visible minorities are dismissed by their teachers as you know if they have behavioral issues it's like oh that kid is jail bound or whatever, you know, like there's so many ways in which we, um, stereotype children who, before they've even had a chance for services. (laughs) And, you know, I guess it it also goes to show like why boys are viewed as disruptive and girls are, might even be exhibiting the same behavior, but they're almost given a pass. Like, I think there are a lot of the time, a lot of times where girls are, you know, work harder to be more well-behaved at a younger age. But I've also interviewed women who were like, no, I was doing the exact same thing as the boy next to me. It's just, he, got in trouble because he was a boy and so there is almost that like you know the the so fascinating I'm sure as an anthropologist too like you could probably go on and on about like how fascinating it is to talk about like gender and race and and um yeah and socioeconomic status and how we are like diagnosing children and how that's oh, yeah, affecting your entire life in terms like I feel like people who have had proper accommodations at a very young age they don't live their whole life with that mentality of like what's wrong with me I am flawed I am that you know they don't view themselves as being personally flawed the way that many of us entered adulthood feeling and how like that absolutely affects your entire self-view and your narrative. And and a lot of kids who received, you know, even just like a simple dyslexia diagnosis are, are treated very different. Or, you know, they sort of view their relationship with learning or, you know, their relationship with like help is very different. And so it's always fascinating to me to think about like, how how similar and yet how different our experiences were based on you know where we lived and what we what was available to us and and it's yeah right I mean I feel like like you know this 
this region in particular is is just marked by structural violence um and you know resource extraction especially like out in eastern kentucky like out like out towards like the appalachian mountains um and and it's just really difficult to see to see just kind of how mm, how i don't even know how to how to say it but yeah it's 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 certainly difficult um especially like when when you're poor i mean and i'm gonna get emotional but yeah it's hard it's hard because then Mm -hmm. you just sort of grow up with like this mentality of like i don't fit in with the world and so like i i had so many different suicide attempts because i just felt like i didn't like i searched so hard for a place to fit in but i just i i couldn't find it and and it was like, you know, I, I can only be prescribed Zoloft and Wellbutra and so many times, like it, but it, it just wasn't working. Like I, I wasn't working. Like I didn't fit in with this like very Calvinistic work hard and good things will come to you kind of like mentality of like, oh, well, as you know, <laughs> you're fine as long as you're working really hard because I couldn't work really hard. It was, it, it was harder for me. Right. And so like, I was cast into this like undeserving poor net. Like there is like this, like there's this group of like, you know, those who are poor, but are very deserving. And then the undeserving poor who are like lazy and morally corrupt. And I feel like that's kind of like, you know, where I was just cast in society because of people thought that I was lazy. I couldn't stick with a job. I was flunking out of school. I was, you know, homeless at various points. I, got married twice both times was I mean really rooted in the fact that I was terrified of like finding places to sleep in and you know it was it was hard and I just went through so many different challenges in life that I feel like didn't need to happen Mm -hmm. um and had I had the the mental health support very early on wouldn't have happened um it's it's been yeah it's been hard I mean it's it's uh, something that I think that needs to be immediately addressed um, because it it is serious. I mean, there were so many times where I literally didn't want to be alive anymore because I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, and and I mean, I just I, I, w- I will never forgive the system for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you. Uh, wow. That you, you you covered a lot. And I appreciate how well you've been articulating the this experience and this um you know the i think a lot of it does have to do with like the western protestant mentality uh, you know of this like idea that independence and and capableness is a moral virtue and that if you ask for help you are morally flawed i think that's deeply ingrained in our system and mm-hmm. in our psyches and i feel like that could be a whole other episode <laughs> Um, but yeah, it really is. I mean, it's so, gosh, it's so overwhelming and it's why I I will never tire of, of hearing everybody's story and how, you know, the, how emotional it is and like, how do we even begin to really start to articulate for other people 
what it feels like uh, to go through life undiagnosed and, or even diagnosed. I mean, that's the other thing is that I've, you know, I've spoken to women who were diagnosed in childhood and still experience a lot of these um, same issues. So it's now, now uh, just to like, (laughs) I want to be mindful of the time. So I want to kind of shift a little bit to like, now you, since you've been diagnosed and you're in this PhD program, like how has it shifted your thinking about your, how deserving you are to be in this, you know, in the room, you know, and, and it's must, like, I feel like for me, it's been, it's so radically changed how I view myself intellectually. Right. And so I imagine there's, you know, it's, it's been opening up a lot of, um, windows for you, like airing out (laughs) some of the, some of the shame. Right. And I mean, how has, how has your thinking been shifting? I know it's really still early on, but, um, can you? Oh yeah. So we, I am still very much in a grieving process right now, um, with this whole situation, because, you know, I'm consistently reminded like, Oh, but like, yeah, you were just diagnosed ADHD, but you're doing so good. Like you're in a PhD program and like you made it through two divorces, you're 30 and like, you're like thriving right now. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, do you know what it's been like on this journey? <laughs> like not to ever endorse medicine because all bodies are different. It just so happens that my medicine and my body work very well together. Um, and the first time I, I you know, took the medicine and, and with therapy, therapy is important too. Uh, I'm I'm very much treating it right now, not just with <laughs> medicine, but with so many other things like the podcast and therapy and support groups. And um, so I just remember thinking how quiet my head was, and and just how it took zero spoons and that like spoon theory, like how many spoons does it take to do something? How it took zero spoons to to respond to an email and I didn't want to like sit in the floor and cry just because I got an email I, I, I didn't have to think about writing the email for an hour and then like you know finally doing it um it, it was just so quiet in my head and I could just do things so effortlessly of course I still get distracted but then I can get back to work and and it's been so amazing on this on this very new journey for me but also I mean it's it's just really hard to grieve the person that I think I could have been, the person who could have finished high school, the person who definitely did not need to go through two divorces before the age of 30, the person who, whose, whose life could just be so much more organized. And, and I, you know, could have maybe done something really good because I, I only study food insecurities and, and maybe I would have come up with a new policy by now, had I been diagnosed sooner. I don't know. Um, so I suppose I feel like as far as me deserving to be here, I feel like everyone deserves in life to get whatever it is that they want. I don't think that I have any more ability or any more claim to the pie than anyone else. Um, but it certainly made me want to fight harder. And it certainly made the days when I'm like, yep, I'm quitting this PhD program. I'm done. I'm out. I hate this. I just can't even think about grading another paper or writing another article. It certainly made me on those days be like, Mm-mm, we will we will finish this program because there is going to be one undergraduate student out there in the future who is, who is going to be just like you were and they're not going to want to do anything and they're going to be tired and they're just going to want to give up and, and they're going to really blame themselves for their poverty and their, and their mental traits and characteristics. And you're going to be the professor who comes in and it's like, no, I believe in you. 
submit that assignment late. I don't care as, as long as you get it to me. Um, and, and so, so that's kind of what keeps me going right now. I don't know that I deserve to be here. Um, but, but I certainly will fight to be here, um, and fight for a better system, um, in general, um, for, for my state. Uh, I think that Kentucky has a long way to go, but I am, I've got my, I've got my gloves on. I'm ready to, <laughs> ready to fight back. <laughs> Um, now, if you could rename ADHD to something a little less disordery, <laughs> would, would do you have something you would rather call it? Yeah. Okay. So I wrote down two things. So the first one is serious. Okay. So I thought attention variations and executive function variability spectrum. That is gross. I know, but I think that there is a way to make it spell F A V E S, like faves. You would just have to like rework that. But like, I like the words uh, variation and spectrum um, yeah. that are part of that, because I feel like, and you know, not to co-opt ASD language again, but I feel like it, it, I mean, there is just so much, like there are so many differences within ADHD people that it is a spectrum, right? I mean, everything's a spectrum. Gender is a spectrum. Life is a spectrum. Everything's a spectrum. So, so I think that the word spectrum just has to be included. Um, and that's my like serious one. And then my funny one, because I feel like you need two to kind of show like the two parts of me, right? <laughs> is um, the number 80 with HD, like high def, because we have 80 things going on in our head and high def all at the same time. <laughs> so, so that's my funny. <laughs> uh, I love that. Yeah, I think Con- Connor DeWolf has ADHDs, where it's literally just HD eighty times on a sweatshirt that he sells that in his merch store, which is great because it's like we are the only ones who would get that joke anyway. <laughs> uh, so we love inside jokes. Um, eight, yeah, that is awesome. It's true. Oh, that's good. I like that. I really, yeah, I think executive function really needs to be brought to the, you know, rise to the top in terms of attention issues. And especially for women, I think executive function is really where you start to understand uh, the, you know, the, the depths to which something as simple as dopamine deficiency can really sort of affect all of these, you know, all of these pockets of your life in, in, ways that are just so profound. Um, well, that is so, that is great. I'm so glad we had this conversation and I, I know that there are going to be so many people who are going to listen to your story and, and be so appreciative of, you know, sharing your journey. And I mean, I think that's how we are learning about ourselves and really kind of learning at changing the face of ADHD is, is sharing our stories. So I'm so glad that you've been able to listen to other women's stories and through the podcast and that they've helped you and that now we can kind of go full circle (laughs) and share your own. Yeah, that's one of the things I do as an anthropologist. So I, uh, I, I share stories for social change. And so part of the way that I try to you know, shape food policy is I share my story of what it was like to grow up in a really food insecure household with like our governor um, and like our state ag commissioner uh, and things like that. And I try to get other people to share their stories of hunger too, um, to help combat, you know, food insecurity in the state. So I am a huge storyteller. I love, love storytelling. And so I was immediately like, okay, this is my podcast. Like, this is it. I'm obsessed <laughs> with this. I've been hyper-focused for so long now. I'm like, oh, time to watch a new episode. Yeah, right. Well, from GED to PhD, 
uh, with some ADHD (laughs) on the side. I love it. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com slash coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy, or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.